Hi, this is Queen Anne's County Commissioner Jim Moran, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing fine. How are you? Doing very well. Very busy, busy morning today. We're recording on Thursday, June 27th. And Michael, the first half of the podcast, will talk about two landmark Supreme Court decisions that were handed down today. We'll also get into a little bit of an update on some of the fiscal talk that we had for you last week, and we'll recap the 2019 Maryland Municipal League Summer Conference, which we got back from yesterday. So, Michael, let's jump right in. Let's first talk about redistricting. I mean, obviously, we've talked about this before on the podcast, and the Supreme Court, in its decision today, one of the the cases that it weighed in on was a case from Maryland, right? I think think everybody knew this case was one of the most closely watched for the entire year. And uh, holding to form, this one they held on to. This is literally the last week for them to do their decisions and opinions. And so, you know, folks in Maryland for the last several mornings through the month of June, is this going to be the day? Is tomorrow the day? Kind of got word on Wednesday that Thursday morning was going to be was going to be the re- release of the redistricting case. So, lo and behold, we've seen it, and uh, a big deal. I don't think it's a big surprise, right. but it is a big deal. For for political watchers everywhere that the court you know shows up with a thin majority saying we're not stepping into this issue. Right. So it was a five to four decision. And basically what the U.S. Supreme Court said was when we're talking about redistricting, when you get into partisan gerrymandering challenges on electoral maps, those are political questions and they are thus beyond the reach of the federal courts. And so yeah. they dismissed challenges by voters here in Maryland and in North Carolina. Right. So they, they set the bar high. I mean, there's some there's some history that leads up to this. And I think that's worth talking through. We've, we've done this in long form before, but the threat threshold question that the Supreme Court is asking is not whether North Carolina and Wisconsin and Maryland did a really good job or a smooth or a slick or a nice job. The question for them is, is what any or all of these states engaged in fundamentally unconstitutional? And therefore, that's when the federal courts would step in and say, Okay, you can have your own process, but you cannot do this particular thing. Okay, so let me stop you there. As you said, this is really the third bucket when we talk about redistricting. So the courts have already weighed in on non-proportional redistricting. They've weighed in on racial gerrymandering. And now here today, partisan gerrymandering. So the first round of this goes back several decades uh, but in the 60s and into the 70s was a sort of heyday for the Supreme Court getting you know, weighing in on a variety of issues and and setting standards that we're all really familiar with on issues of privacy and rights of the accused and a variety of other things. And in, in the midst of all that, 
the the Baker versus Carr case probably the centerpiece of a big political movement when the Supreme Court needed to weigh in and basically say, we know there are states that are drawing districts, particularly at the state legislative level, that are uneven, deliberately uneven in the number of people, the number of voters within each district. Um, Maryland was one of those states. Mm -hmm. We used to have a fixed number of state senators who represented the city of Baltimore and then one one seat for every other county across the state. And nobody was under any illusion that those were drawn as districts with equal number of voters. It was just, well, these are our political jurisdictions. This is the system we want to use. People said, my district isn't fair because I live with lots and lots of people and we only get one vote and this other tiny county gets one vote. And so I'm going to Atlanta and I'm going to Annapolis and I'm going to my state capital and we're going to litigate this. Those cases made their way to the Supreme Court in Baker versus Carr, where they said the principle needs to be one person, one vote. They said one man, one vote at the time. Right. But our modern right. you know, take on that is a, a one person, one vote is the principle of drawing districts. That traces to the 14th Amendment that everybody deserves equal protection under law and implied in that is equal representation. So proportionate districts are, are an issue of equal representation, equal protection, right? The next bucket is racial gerrymandering, right? And they've weighed in on this issue as well. Yeah, this isn't not as clear, but but since then there have been a variety of cases where district drawing at different levels has either unofficially or even openly been done in the name of altering the outcome of races with an eye towards diversity of the the elected winners. So the idea of either corralling lots of minority voters in one jurisdiction to to sort of say, well, let's only give that community one vote rather than the two or three it might get in our alternative right. maps. Diluting their their representation. Right. So if 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 you draw maps to basically effectively disenfranchise or reduce the franchise of minority groups, protected classes is, is a term of mm-hmm. art. If you're if you're diluting or disenfranchising the effectiveness of the representation for a protected class, you're going to run afoul of constitutional principles. You might be able to draw a district with an eye towards gaining representation right. to offset a balance, but generally speaking, you're in trouble if you're found to have said we want to minimize the you know, the impact of minority groups. Okay, so we understand proportionate districts, we understand racial gerrymandering. The courts have never gone so far, though, to say whether or not a legislature can draw districts simply to preserve party power, whether or not that is a violation of the Constitution. And, and right. I know... You know, the question really is, Michael, if you are bringing this issue up as a Republican or a Democrat, are you saying that because I'm a Republican or because I'm a Democrat, that makes me a protected class? My political affiliation makes me a protected class. And I think the court was pretty clear today. I mean, the court basically rejected the notion that some some degree of fairness along that axis, not I mean, the classic protected classes. You know, this is this is a notion in both federal law and in case law that there are classes of citizens that either have been historically subject of discrimination or uh, you know, have been excluded from processes and so forth. So you don't treat people unfairly because of their gender, because of their race, because of their religion and so forth. Mm-hmm. This is the, the, 
I mean, the essence of these cases, the one in Maryland about our westernmost district, the 6th district, the case that affects multiple districts in North Carolina, another case that's kind of been on the shelf from Wisconsin right. and a couple others. Um, collectively, the centerpiece argument there is the red-blue axis that look at the number of registered voters or the typical turnout by precinct and in, is the act of building districts with an eye towards a red-blue turnout itself a way of disenfranchising people. So, I mean, there is a parallel there. If you're saying we've got a non-white population in this city and we're going to draw, draw districts so that they really can't hold very much sway in the outcome, right? you're going to be probably thrown out in court. And that's different. But, well, right? that, but, but this was ultimately the question. If you take that same logic and you just substitute a racial minority, religious minority, right, right. or something like that, and you substitute it with a political minority, then have you affronted people in fundamentally the same way? Are, you know, are they entitled to have a reasonable opportunity to be represented by people of their own political alignment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so... I mean, and you can understand right. it's a fascinating question, right? right? And that's why it's been tied up for so long. Sure, and and you know we started seeing the idea of could there be a formula? There's you know mathematicians and computer scientists who have all these models of how you could draw draw maps mm-hmm. or estimate the skew of a particular state legislative map or a state congressional map, and you know this state is worse because on this index it's a seven or it's an eight or a nine or whatever. So all these you know all these sorts of things pointed in the direction of maybe. The courts will open this up and we will have a whole new body of law get written that clamps down on what states can do on this front. Right. I think some people thought maybe the court would create some sort of a test, right? And they would write a new law and say, you have to follow these guidelines Mm -hmm. when you do this. Ultimately, though, what they said was the federal courts do not need to be weighing in on these issues. This is up to the state legislatures. They need to deal with it. But when it comes to partisan, you know, issues right. of partisan gerrymandering, we are not going to step into this. So Republican Democrat is fundamentally different than white or non-white or religion versus other religion or gender versus other gender. This is fundamentally different. This is not a this is not a constitutional matter where an act that you know that might be unpopular or it might be unappetizing. It's still a political process. There's a way to hold people accountable. You can hold the state legislature accountable. You can right. vote them out. Right. If the citizens don't like the maps that they draw. Mm-hmm. So, so in in the aggregate, that's what the majority here. I mean, it's interesting. Maryland's presence among the states here was sort of calculated. I mean, there's there are plenty of people who feel very strongly about the way the maps were drawn in Maryland. Right. We have the governor who was serving at the time have expressed his own after the fact opinions about the Maryland process, mm-hmm. but. Maryland has been the anomaly state on this list. In Wisconsin and North Carolina, the big fight was over Republican-led state governments drawing districts to benefit the red, you know, have more red representation right. sent to Congress. Democrats were crying yeah. foul. In yeah, those and, and some years ago, Texas was in the mm-hmm. middle of this on some different issues of doing redistricting out of cycle and other stuff like that. But this issue has has been sort of associated with Republican Party marginalizing the effect of where the Democrats are. Mm-hmm. So you split up the votes from Charlotte in a way to change who, who gets elected in North Carolina. Right. Um, Maryland is exactly the mirror opposite. It's a Democrat, you know, blue majority state that has been accused in these cases of 
diffusing and diluting the effect of the red or the likely red voters within the state, particularly toward the western part of the state in the 6th and the 8th districts. Right. And this is really significant for Maryland because for a while now we've been wondering, will the General Assembly need to come back for a special session? Will they need to draw these maps in time for the 2020 elections? Because typically we draw these maps every 10 years after the census and the census is in 2020. So they were going to plan on coming back and they would redraw the maps after the census. But if the court today would have gone a different way, right. it's possible they would have had to come back in and get this done before the 2020 elections, which would have been a huge lift. Right. I mean, the, the soonest you could do anything would be the fall of this year. I mean, October, November. Right, right. I'm just saying, you know, if, if, Logistically. The court, if the courts had gone the other way and ruled, Maryland, you've got to fix this now in time for the next election. I mean, the primaries are in the early months. It's a presidential year. Mm-hmm. So you would have to see, you know, sort of a double time march toward this. Uh, it's it, it's just it's a peculiar decision for in a lot of ways. Maryland is the mirror image state. So you also have this weird dynamic of our Republican governor who has been among the national figures saying he's against gerrymandering and wanted to see these districts thrown out um, that were done on a previous administration from a different party. Right. Uh, he said we should throw them out. And and now it, we, we, you know, we're seeing at least bits and pieces of the Democratic leadership of the state of Maryland praising, the praising decision. this decision, which was, I mean, we should, you know, no point, no point dancing around it. It's a five, four majority of the red inclined or right inclined inclined justices on the Supreme Court. It's the two new President Trump appointees siding with three more conservative justices and locking up a five to four vote. It's the left aligned or democratically appointed members who all voted against. So we are we are we are the bizarro world here in Superman terms. We're the one place where the Democrats are happy that Brett Kavanaugh and and the, you know this whole team from Team Red mm-hmm. all voted this way. And it's the it's the Republicans here who are frustrated that the Democrats couldn't get their way on the Supreme Court. Yeah, and even you know in Washington, congressional leadership, Democrats, Republicans, it's the, it's again like the bizarro world here in Maryland. We don't match up with what's going on there. So maybe the one place in the country where you have that interesting dynamic. So this is over now. This lawsuit has been thrown out. This has been going on for years and years and years. And I guess now we have an answer. They don't have to redraw these districts, but more meaningful, I think, on what happens in the future with all these maps, because this means we won't have challenges anymore for folks claiming that, you know, partisan gerrymandering is going on. I, I guess so. Now, we, I mean, we, we should caveat this in a couple of ways. I mean, you know, neither of us are lawyers. So we've spent some time today reading through some quick analysis. And there were I'm sure there were tons of people who had op ed pieces written two ways, ready to drop today, as soon as the, you know, oh, this is a great finding, or this is a terrible finding, and here's right. why. Because right. everybody knew this was common. So there will be a lot of stakeholders who have things to say. I'm already seeing an undercurrent of people saying, well, maybe now this is going to be like a big green light, and every legislature and every governor are going to feel empowered to just go nuts. Yeah, like, major you know, ramifications. That, that now, you know, like the Massachusetts or the Californias of the world might double down and say, well, if if the feds are just going to totally stay out of this, then why not go even farther? Let's, you know, let's have, have these really crazy cockeyed districts and do, do whatever we want to do. 
who knows there are principles under state constitutions that could matter and there's always the you know the ire of the voter that if you do something that makes them mad you can lose an election even if you don't lose in court right but as a practical matter this might not be the end of the discussion we might three or four years from now be podcasting and talking about holy cow districts are not just butterflies and octopi now you know they've turned into checkerboards and who knows what else yeah there's you know off (laughs) off the wall stuff right right? so michael the other major decision today has to do with the census Uh, this is another one that we've talked about on the podcast before has major ramifications for a lot of states who have been saying hey we really need to make sure we get this right because we need to make sure that we get the appropriate level of funding for our communities and also that we have the appropriate representation in Congress. So the question today was whether or not the Trump administration could add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The Supreme Court basically, Michael said today, until the administration does a better job of explaining why that question is necessary, they will not agree to put it on the census. And so basically shooting this down and sending it back down to the lower court, there's not going to be enough time between now and 2020 census to get this on, you know, even if they wanted to. Right. So what, I mean, the, the, the census is a big operation. It's millions and millions and millions of pieces of paper. It's incredible. When you really think about it, right, it's incredible. Right, I mean, it, it is. Really it's is. a huge undertaking. It's an, we, we, we talked about this also some weeks ago, but you know, every 10 years there's a blip in the employment levels nationwide because of so many people getting temporary employment as part of walking around and gathering census information and managing it and assembling it and right. you know, running through the paperwork that gets submitted and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is a really big undertaking. What we heard from the Department of Commerce, who oversees the census, is they needed an expedited decision through the courts in order to meet their printing deadlines, and they want to go to print in the month of July. So that's literally days away from now. Right. So the whole idea was we need the Supreme Court to rule on this issue. Here's our argument for adding this new question. Here's why we did it. There were a variety of interest groups who showed up and said, we think the addition of a new question will compromise the validity of the information gathered. It'll have a chilling effect on people being willing to participate in the census. I mean, this is a short version of Mm -hmm. of a much longer debate. And we even had a twist just a few days ago with you know more information about the the process that led to adding this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, this landed with the Supreme Court waiting until the last couple of days of their term. They conclude you haven't made the case that this question is necessary. The the concerns that it raises about participation and accuracy are valid. So forget it. It wasn't it wasn't really a formal ruling saying we hereby are done talking about this issue. Right. Rather it was we don't think the argument that's been made for why the question w- should be added now has been fully formed. And so you haven't really done your homework well enough here. We're not going to rule in your favor. I think in practice for this 10-year election cycle, that ends the debate. Exactly. So they sent it back down to the lower courts. But as you said, the printing deadline being days away, there's not going to be time for this to, to snake its way back through the courts and get back to the Supreme Court so they can rule you know, within a few days. It's yeah, it obviously yeah, not going to happen. Right. It doesn't seem like there's any way for that to happen. You know, the soonest you would you could see is, is you know, you'd have a moot 
appeal, the census would be completely underway and maybe done. And then a year or two from now, you could have the lawyers debating about whether we did things correctly. But I I mean, that's going to be mooted. Maybe there'll be a legal argument about this before the next decennial census. Or maybe the Census Bureau is collecting information all the time. So it's possible this question pops up in some other way and something before the year 2030. But I think for the big 2020 census, if you were worried about this question showing up and messing up the data, you won today. So we'll leave it there. When we come back, we'll get back into a fiscal update that we gave you last week. We'll make a few more points there. We'll recap the Maryland Municipal League 2019 Summer Conference, all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, last week we had a big discussion about the ongoing debate between the governor and the General Assembly regarding some funds in the budget. And I think we've gotten, yeah, we've gotten a lot of questions over the past week about this. So we're glad people are listening. Well, I mean, so it's a combination of it's an interesting topic. It's a it's a tough one to digest because it it very rapidly descends into the weeds. And you and I and trying to pull together some notes and how 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 deep to talk about this last week we had big x's through our notes about okay yeah we could talk about supplementary appropriations and we could talk about these other processes and so forth but that just that's too much so we tried to keep it thin and i i still think like our discussion about this is probably the most thorough treatment anywhere in the Maryland policy verse that I've seen. Yeah. So, um, so, so that, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to help play that role and be the nerds. That's, that, that's okay with me. Sure. So, um, it's still timely. The governor has not made decisions on what to do. Uh, it sounds as though the, the Maryland Senate has been gathering information from its members to submit to the governor to make the case that this is important for this reason, this is important for that reason. So it sounds like there's still a process ahead. We got feedback from listeners and from friends and from people around town. So we thought that doing a part two on this was timely and worthwhile. And this stuff is still an unknown. So yeah, timely, worthwhile. Let's talk some more. Okay, so the good news is we were able to get longtime budget manager at the Department of Legislative Services, friend of the podcast, David Juppé, to weigh in on some of the questions that we got. And Michael, do you want to go through the listener questions first, and then sort of tie up some loose ends? Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. We got you know we got feedback from several people, and we want to you know get this stuff right, especially you know if 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 this conversation is maybe the clearest that a lot of people are hearing. Mm-hmm. Let's make it as clear as possible. I think that's good. I mean, maybe the first place to start is I'd get to we we talked a good deal about the process of the legislature restricting funds and this is a centerpiece of the debate that's still pending it's not 100% of what's still pending and still undecided for the budget year that's about to start a few days from now right so we have a difference here between restricted funds and authorized spending right yeah so I mean 
I think this is a distinction without much of a practical difference because the bottom line is still basically the same. The legislature has says has said yes, but they have limited authority to do that. The governor needs to take the final action for the money to be available to spend on various programs in the year ahead. Right. So the governor has to do the follow-up. The legislature has already given their preliminary approval. And mm-hmm. because of the quirks in Maryland's one-of-a-kind budget system, the legislature can't add money to anything in the executive branch budget for this year. I mean, there's sort of a side conversation that there are other pieces of the state budget that they could. Uh, The capital budget they can add money to, the Mm -hmm. judiciary and Mm -hmm. the legislature's budget are within their control, sort of like other state legislatures can. It's the executive branch, though, is where all the action is and all the things that are being contested and and being bandied about here. All that stuff's in the executive branch. Right. So to to sum that up, the difference between restricted and authorized spending, the authorized spending is the General Assembly saying, we're going to say okay if you submit a budget amendment, you know, to, to put these funds in. Right. right? So so money from, you know, we have a dedicated purpose account and some other things that are, you know, different terminology, but they're basically reserve funds. Right. And the legislature has said, we would approve use of reserve funds for X, Y, and Z. And this is school construction, but then it's a list of odds and other things. Uh, you know, we've heard the Baltimore Symphony and a variety of other things making the newspaper, but it's a medium-sized list of different things that are sitting out there. Mm-hmm. So, so, so bottom line is, here we are, still a week later, uh, the governor has not made an announcement of what he plans to do on really any of this stuff, save the things that were in the, the, the uh, initial phase Kerwin spending bill, right, right. the school spending stuff. Uh, he announced he was going to release the funds that were necessary to make that happen. And I think the paperwork is already underway for that. The legislature has already been very clear they'd approve that. There's sort of a special process for what do you do if you need to tinker with the budget after the legislature's gone home. So that's been greenlit. But um, the big question still sitting out there for school construction and this list of other things, will the government sign off on them? Exactly. Now, the next question, and it's sort of a debate, I think, back and forth between the governor and the General Assembly, is that, you know, is it fair to put this money up alongside the structural deficit? And, of course, we right. went to budget expert David yeah. Juppé and... Well, I think this one, this is, an, this is a classic eye of the beholder argument. And... I mean, we, we're we doing a lot of paraphrasing, and if you're really interested in pinning down the parties, you should go to the social media accounts and the newspaper articles where people are being quoted right. and, and read their stuff word for word. Uh, I mean, our paraphrasing is basically the, the a central argument by the Hogan administration so far has been even if the legislature said it's okay to spend money on a list of things – we know we've got a problem with the budget next year. That's evidenced by a structural deficit that everybody has kind of agreed on is in the $900 million range for the FY 2021 budget. A structural deficit technically is talking about ongoing revenues and ongoing expenses. Right. So you don't solve a structural deficit by changing one-time stuff. And it's true, a fair number of the things that are here, that are that are at you know it's sort of In being play. debated mm-hmm. uh, are one-time things so it's true that deciding not to spend a bunch of one-time items would not have any effect on that calculated structural deficit on the ongoing problem right 
But at the same time, to the extent that the administration is saying, we know that next year is going to be a tighten the belt and take some hits kind of year, then every dollar they approve now for FY20 is a dollar that doesn't fall to the bottom line and sit there available for one-time use in the FY21 budget. Like you might be able to have a balanced 21 budget without necessarily making structural changes to, to address every penny of that structural deficit. This goes I mean this river goes goes long and and wide and it turns into fights over the spending affordability committee right, right, and right. their recommendations and who's 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 on you know who's on board with the the tightest definitions and so forth but at its core I think you give the administration credit for saying we think tough times are coming and we're skeptical about extra spending. We'd rather put this money into the state's coffers. Right. So so both things are true. I mean, I, the way I would read it is both things are true. Um, it's true that you don't solve structural problems with one-time changes. Mm-hmm. And whether the Baltimore Symphony gets a bag of money this year has nothing to do with what the structural deficit looks like for 21 or through 2025 or whatever we're calculating it to, totally true. At the same time, one-time money does materially affect the ability to handle a budget for next year and the ability for state employees like Dave Juppé to get a raise next year and Mm -hmm. other things like that. Those are the kind of things that are in play for whether next year's budget is workable or not. And spending a couple hundred million dollars now, even on popular things, will make it that much harder next year to resolve. I think it's good that you know we, we clarify there that it depends through what lens you're looking yeah, at this, I think, right? I mean, th- this, this whole debate is going to be a it depends, right. and a lot of people are going to choose their sides because of the sides they start on. But um, I think, you know, let's get the facts right, and let's also understand what the arguments are really being made. So that's So that's fair. Unresolved as we speak. Okay, the next one, I think we hedged a little bit on this last week. The question of whether or not July 1st is the drop-dead date. So if the governor does not decide to release these funds by July 1st, is this question all moot? And the answer there is no. Right. So so it's not like we come back on next week's podcast on, on July 2nd or 3rd or whatever and say, oh, it's over. Right. This whole discussion is over. Short version is no. There's nothing magic about June 30th and July 1st. It's the first day of the fiscal year, but the governor could, could do this any time during the fiscal year to release the funds and do the things. Now, in in practice, a number of these things are programs. So, I mean, I mean, first of all, some of this stuff is projects. Sure. And there, in my mind, there's a difference between a project that you can kind of start on any given day and if you wait nine months and then approve the funding for a project, you can still do the right, project. You can just push it down the road a little bit. Right. Um, some things, you know, if, it, if, if you've got ongoing funding for your schools or other things like that, if these are programs where you would be planning on hiring staff to do a thing – once you get into July, August, September, October, then you've lost the ability to have the staff in place to do the thing. Approving the money later in the fiscal year would mean that you missed an opportunity, at least part of the program's effect. Right. So it's a mixed bag, but the short version is the governor could show up 
in the middle of next week or on July 15th or on October 9th and just say, you know what, I've decided, here's what we're going to do. I'm spending the money. Okay. And then the, the the next question, one of the biggest questions we got was, can this be done piecemeal? So you've mentioned there are many right. different programs and projects that we're talking about here. Could the governor say, okay, I'm going to release the money for this program, but not this project or not this right. program, but this project? The answer there? The answer there is yes. This yes. can be done piece by piece or or drip by drip. And I think the confusion here comes from the last most visible round of this kind of fencing off of restricted funds was several years ago, legislative leaders, again, sort of at odds with Governor Hogan about priorities for that year's budget, uh, ended up doing a similar sort of thing. But that year, there was a clause that said, it's all or nothing. Right. So there, that, that's the difference. There was a yeah, clause. So here's some school funds. And here's, I, I, mean, I remember county governments were interested in some police radio systems that were being funded. And there were some other odds and ends that were all in there. And there was a clause that made it clear the governor can, it's all or nothing. Right. And that was, you know, that was a deliberate attempt by the legislature to, to force the governor's hand and have him fund their whole list of priority items. As it turns out, the governor declined to do that. He didn't come up with that funding. Mm-hmm. He let all those things delay for a year. Uh, this session, we're not dealing with the same thing. There's no similar clause. So if the governor wanted to say, I'm going to approve the million and a half dollars for this item and the $10 million for that and the four for this and the two for that, but none of the rest, he can pick and choose and decide what he wants to do. He can make decisions over time. He's got he's got a lot more latitude on how to deal with this. Okay, so I think that clears up most of the significant questions that we've been getting. If you're interested in learning more about what we're talking about on the blog, in our podcast, feed. You can go back to last week's episode. We did a whole segment on this. It's really interesting stuff. And as you said, it can get really into the weeds. But I think we've tried to strike a balance of yeah. of keeping this listenable versus, mm-hmm. you know, just going off in the weeds for 10 hours. And, right. you know, and, and, and we should. I mean, we rely on the Department of Legislative Services very routinely and and extensively mm-hmm. for for their I mean, they're sort of the arbiters of what's the official fiscal estimate on things. And, you know, Dr. Juppé is a member of that team and he's a senior budget leader over there. So so he's one of the people who has his fingers on the pulse. Uh, They do lots of publications and reports. Their 90-day report at the end of every legislative session is a must-read if you're a real wonk on this kind of stuff. It is on our blog. Um, So yeah, we link to all that stuff in our documents, but perusing their site and looking at what they've generated and listening to their podcast. Don't forget. um, All all this stuff is worthwhile uh, and, and, and worth your time. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So Michael, we were down in Ocean City with our colleague Natasha Mayhew the last few days. We visited some of the lower shore counties. Also, though, the Maryland Municipal League had its annual summer conference and always a great event. It was a great turnout. I feel like I learned a lot. I talked to a lot of people. I just wanted to sort of recap that a little bit and see what your thoughts are. I think think it's... It's a great benefit for us at MAKO. We do our summer conference a little later in the year, um, but getting a feel for the building. There's all, I mean, the, the staff at the Ocean City Convention Center are always, they're very imaginative and looking for new ways to make improvements and so forth. So I love coming to the Municipal League Conference, sit in on a session, and it turns out they've taken two rooms and made them into one giant sideways room, and now they're doing a fast-paced, slide-based presentation that I have not seen that setup before. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine, I'm making a note. We're going to steal that idea and do it at our shop. Right. 
um, I, you know, they they make a lot of use of the performing the performing arts center at the convention center, which is a nice sort of kind of an intimate venue for a big group, more mm-hmm. so than the big flat ballroom. And we're increasingly using that space too. I right. think that's a good thing. Right. They run a lot of the same topics. They were talking, uh, you know, they they do things for the academy for excellence in local governance. Mm-hmm. That it's a joint venture between the municipal league, the, the our association, and the University of Maryland. So they were running sessions on those too. They were talking cybersecurity. They were talking, right. I mean, you know, five G wireless, right. Out, right? All so that. So lots of overlap with the content that cities and towns care about, and the things that counties care about. I love getting down there, hearing good speakers, and sort of poaching those ideas and making sure. Okay, we need to get that point of view on the panel we're already putting together on the same topic. Yeah, it, it's a great it's a great way for us to make sure we're doing things the right way in our planning for our summer conference, which is August 14th through the 17th in Ocean City. But also, Michael, I love this time of year, this trip, because we had the opportunity to visit three lower shore counties. Uh, we visited Worcester, Wicomico, and Somerset right. on uh, Tuesday. One and it's always day. great to, to meet right. with them. Yeah, it's a long day, right. but it's always great to sit down with the local governments there, hear their perspective, hear what they're worried about, what they care about, so we can bring that information back to Annapolis and do our jobs the most effectively. Right. So that I mean we're a member-driven organization and we you know we tend to you know be huddled in front of our microphones here in Annapolis and you know over at the testimony table during the legislative session and people think that's all that Mako does and that's all the policy staff is working on. Right. I mean part of it is getting out and talking to the county commissioners and the council members and so forth and and hearing what's happening back in their district and almost every jurisdiction we sit down with they we're sitting scurrying to write notes on something that, wow, we hadn't heard about this before. Mm-hmm. Wait, this is new? I mean, the lower shore right now is in kind of crisis mode with the Meals on Wheels program, yeah, which, which you know, as of a month ago, was not even really on our radar as a an intergovernmental panic. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it feels that way right now. When you talk to them, they've got citizens who suddenly are left without good options. That's right. So that's really important. And that's the kind of stuff. I mean, you visit all 24 counties every single year. And there are a lot of differences, but you hear a lot of the same concerns, obviously, sure. too. Mm-hmm. So, but, but parsing out those differences, I think, is so important. And just, just get, having the chance to sit down with them and talk to them is, is always a really good time, even though it's breakfast in one county, lunch in another county, dinner in one county, <laughs> the same day. It, it's a long day for sure, but well worth it. Totally agree. All right, we'll leave it there. If you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to give us a like, subscribe, let your friends and family know. It really helps to get our message out. But until next week, for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. 